Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I think one of the stories that's captured everybody's attention this week is that of the lottery. The Mega Millions jackpot is the largest that it's ever been. Powerball is going to have a big drawing over the weekend also. I think between the both of them, they're going to be giving away $1.3 to $1.4 billion in lottery. Miranda, if you won the lottery, who would be the first person you'd call? Um, I think I'd call my friend Megan McCain because her family has been insanely wealthy forever. <laughs> and so she's the only person I know who would not try to get money out of me. Yeah. And she would know the people to call the to make that last over generations. That's funny. I thought you were going to say something like, hey, now I'm as rich as you guys. But <laughs> uh, I mean, I it, might say that the experts say that the first person you should be calling is actually a lawyer. Because there's a lot of stuff that you have to deal with when you win the lottery. A lot of times in states, your name has to be publicly announced. You can't get away. I think there's only six states where you can't be named, where you can remain anonymous. So it's crazy. But just, you know, good luck to everybody out there playing. For the Mega Millions, your chances of winning are 1 in 302.6 million. Oh, jeez. For winning the Powerball, it's 1 in 292 million. So, and then the chances of you winning both, let's say you played everything, <laughs> one in 88 quadrillion. That's wow. 88 followed by 15 zeros. So, I like I mean, those odds. <laughs> the odds are crazy. We spoke to Rodrigo Torrejon. He's a reporter for The Record in New Jersey. And we talked to him about why you should be calling a lawyer first and how they can help you out. Keep your mouth shut and call a lawyer. As far as winning it big, I spoke to a uh, Jason Curlin. He's an attorney based in Uniondale, New York. He's actually the self-proclaimed lottery lawyer. I think he's represented more than 30 lottery winners since 2011. I saw him. his name mentioned in a bunch of articles. Yeah, he is the guy. I guess you would say he's the expert on this type of stuff. And he said that's pretty much the first thing he told me is before you speak to anybody, call a lawyer, particularly one that has experience in representing lottery winners and basically protecting them from a lot of the pitfalls of winning so much money in such a short time. Right, because people don't know what to do with all that money at first. The jackpot for the Mega Millions is $970 million. If you take the cash option, it's $548 million. Still a ton of money. One of the main pitfalls is a lot of states require you to be publicly announced. It's like a matter of public record, so you can't get away with being anonymous. In New Jersey, I actually did another article trying to answer that question because a few months back, the jackpot for the Mega Millions was also pretty large. So people, the, the question that I would get most frequently is, can I claim my jackpot anonymously if I win? So I figured it out, and unfortunately, the answer is no, you, you really can't. In New Jersey, it's a matter of public record. In other words, if the average citizen is allowed to and encouraged uh, to uh, file what's called a public record request, and through that, you can obtain the name of any lottery winner. The uh, director, actually, of the state lottery said, you know, this is a very public game, so we want people's names out there. You know, this is we want people to know 
who's getting the money that they've spent on this statewide game, this lottery. And, you know, a lot of people have also offered up, well, can I start a LLC or an entity to claim the prize? Right. And James Carey is his name, the director of the lottery. He said, yeah, that's fine. You can do that, of course. And they'll pay the jackpot to whatever entity you set up for that. But your name will still be public record. Wow. I guess it may, maybe the only thing in that is that you could delay your name coming out because the uh, the trust or the LLC might get first billing. Uh, there's, there's only six states where you can remain anonymous. Delaware, Kansas, Maryland, North Dakota, Ohio, and South Carolina. <laughs> you know, pretty much anywhere your name's going to get out there. I, I know uh, people have said you should get off the internet immediately before you announce, you know, close your social media down. If you have a landline, make it unlisted before skip town. If you can right when they're going to announce it so that you're not there. And, you know, you work in the media, as you've seen, when anything major happens in the news, the media starts hunting down any pictures that they can of you, uh, you know, all the details because everybody wants to know. So, you know, some experts have said, close all that stuff down just to help avoid it. That's one of the first tips that I've gotten from multiple experts is, yeah, try to get off social media because, like you said, that's the first place that not just reporters look, but people that might want to start contacting you for money, for charity. And that's another issue is that, you know, a lot of charities that will tend to reach out to jackpot winners, they are legitimate, but then there are a lot that are bogus. That's what Jason Curlin, the lottery lawyer, was telling me is, you know, you kind of have to keep it to yourself in more way in more ways than just one, not just a matter of not talking to people and telling them about it. But yeah, scrub your social media if you can. If you have your phone number out there, try to get it down just so that, again, like you said, kind of delay people doing that. Because especially in New Jersey, inevitably, it, it's probably going to happen. Your name will be out there, but at least maybe stave it off for a little bit. Right. And, you know, as far as like skipping town and all this, all these steps, the initial interest is there as soon as the name comes out. So hopefully after the news cycle switches a little bit, maybe you can kind of get away with being so popular if if you take the proper steps. What about the office pool? Because we do that here at work. And thankfully, the person who kind of runs the office pool for us is very transparent with everything she always takes pictures of all the tickets, very clear with everyone. We split everything no matter what the prize is. Mm -hmm. But I know that people run into that problem a lot, trying to claim, well, I got this ticket or that was my money and different things like that. There's a few issues with that. And that's actually one of the uh, biggest pitfalls that the lottery lawyer mentioned to me is, first of all, a lottery ticket's what's called a bearer instrument, which is basically just a fancy term to say that the holder is presumed to be the owner. So if you have a ticket that's the you know the winning lottery ticket, and let's say you drop it in the street, someone picks it up and signs the back of it, it's now their ticket. Whoever picks it up and signs it is their ticket. So the issue that comes into play with office pools is that you know people chip in cash to buy these lottery tickets, and then when one of the ticket holders ends up winning, it can kind of end up being a messy brawl to figure out who's actually entitled to the prize money. So the best way to prevent any kind of litigation or issue to begin with is to uh, make copies of each of the tickets that were purchased and then send the specific ticket numbers to uh, people in the office pool in an email thread. That way you have at least some kind of a paper trail. Right. So if were there to be unluckily some kind of litigation, a judge could look at that email and say, well, it says right here in writing that this was your ticket and this was your ticket and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's so important to contact the right people when you come into large sums of money. We've all heard about the lottery curse, people getting tons of money, blowing it all and 
you know, then their life is worse off than before. I'm in California. I see people lining up all the time, hitting the you know previous winter locations and trying to buy those tickets. How's it going there in New Jersey? There's definitely a little bit of a buzz. It's not to say a lot of a buzz. I believe there was a winning lottery ticket sold was in a specific convenience store. And because of that, a bunch of people were running back to that same convenience yep. store, think, hoping and thinking, you know, <laughs> this is the lucky spot. Rodrigo Torrejon, reporter for The Record. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. I appreciate it. One of the reports that came out during the week that went viral was about climate change. And you might think climate change, there's reports on it coming out all the time. But this one specifically had to do with how it would affect the price of beer. So that made everybody's ears perk up and they got very concerned right away. Because of global warming, it's going to hurt barley crops, likely doubling the price of beer in the coming decades. In Ireland, I think they might be the worst hit. It's going to triple the price of beer. The It will affect Ireland and European countries the most. The U.S. will not escape unscathed. We'll see higher prices. And they say that people could even be drinking less beer because of all this stuff. So for more on the study, we turn to Dan Vergano. He's a science reporter with BuzzFeed News. And we started by talking about what is in this new report. Well, this is really like a one in a series of reports trying to look at how climate change is going to hurt food production. So they looked at a lot of grains and they're finally getting the barley and the guys doing it said, what did barley and beer, they kind of go together. So let's add an economic model for beer into this thing and see what happens with climate change. And the results are interesting in that what they decided looking at the analysis was that the extreme years, which don't happen every year under climate change, are the ones that really make a difference in terms of the price of beer and how much is going to be around. It's the years where you have extreme droughts and heat waves knocking out, you know, sort of these sort of continental size areas at the same time where most of the barley is produced in the world. And they said they wanted to use barley specifically because it would show people kind of the real world effects of climate change because everybody drinks beer or, you know, a lot of people drink beer. It would give them something more concrete to hold on to. Climate change, a lot of people, "Ah, it doesn't affect me or I don't care or something like that. But if you mess with their beer, then, you know, they're more likely to kind of believe it or want to make some change because of it. Right. It's an international team from uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences and uh, universities in the UK and in the US and University of California. And yeah, my sense is that they are. In fact, people who do like a beer and uh, were wondering about this question. <laughs> they said also that consumption could drop in some countries because the price would be getting too high. Some of this barley is the same barley that we feed to livestock. They would have to use that barley for the livestock and not so much for beer production. So they're saying that a consumption would also go down as a result of this. It's a kind of complicated economic model, but essentially what they're arguing is that cattle are expensive, and so the farmers are going to feed the barley to the cattle so they don't lose them, and so there's going to be less barley to sell, and the price for it is going to go up, and as a result, the price of beer goes up, and when the price goes up for something and the supply goes down, then people drink less of it. In that sense, it's not too complicated. You know, I did talk to climate scientists who said, yeah, you know, sure, of course it'll go up in those years. It'll be the same thing for any other commodity. The work they did is coupling the climate model to the economic model for barley to the beer model is sort of what's new here with this. And who are the countries that are going to be affected by this the most? I know Ireland, like I said, could see triple prices of beer, but right. where are the other countries and where does the U.S. fare in this? The Northern Europe is gets the biggest hit because they'll have to import the most barley. The 
uh, make the beer. And the U.S. consumption drops and price goes up, but not as much as other places because barley production starts moving north into Canada further, so we don't lose as much supply. Uh, barley is imported and exported widely, and that was incorporated in the model, but you know, it really helps in terms of price to have the stuff nearby. What's been the reaction from other groups or you know, beer trade groups? I know the Brewers Association was one of them that said, hey, you know, this is an ap- academic exercise. Don't believe all the hype. Nothing to lose sleep over. And they also say, you know, that farmers would be adapting as things would happen. You know, they'd shift barley growing to other parts where they can still get good yields. But so what's been the reaction out of other people outside of the study? You've summarized the beer industry's reaction pretty nicely. <laughs> yeah, they said we're on top of this thing. There was a drought in the Pacific Northwest last year that affected barley production. And so we're all aware of this and worrying about it. And that's all nice. But some of the people who look at sort of large scale farming say that, you know, these are changes that are going to be happening on continent wide scales. And it is going to affect crops when you have droughts and heat waves. We can engineer for things like drought resistance, but that actually might change the nutrient profile of the barley, which might change the taste of the beer or, you know, it's what's in it. And you can engineer for drought resistance, but heat resistance is a tough one. And heat is the thing that's going on all the time with climate change. And that might change these very basic chemical reactions that are going on in barley that make barley barley. And so that's why you have to move it north to farm it. And, you know, you run out of north after a while and it becomes more expensive to do that sort of thing. You're competing with other crops. So the people who study these things on an agricultural economics basis are not as sanguine as the industry. On the other hand, you know, people like beer and the industry is a pretty innovative one in some ways. So, you know, maybe they will get on top of it. It just shows it's not cheaper, though, than like not having to worry about it. Yeah, I think it's just pretty funny how quickly this story went viral. You know, obviously climate change, a lot of people are always attuned to that. But you throw in beer. One of the authors of the study even said, not sure what to make of the fact that in one day, our paper on climate and beer has garnered considerably more attention than any of their previous work on energy transitions, air pollution, deaths, anything other than that. You know, it's like this, you know, you're messing with my beer and, you know, everybody's like interested in it right away. Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All this month of October, I've been putting in little stories in the podcast, just trying to get everybody to get on the same level of Halloween that I love to get every year. The one that caught my attention this past week was that of a child vampire burial that was found in Italy in some type of baby cemetery. There was this eerie discovery that they found. It was the skeleton of a 10-year-old that had a rock lodged in its mouth. They buried this child this way because they were afraid it was going to come back to life and continue to spread malaria. I spoke to my producer, Miranda, and we talked about this vampire burial site in Italy. Researchers from the University of Arizona and also uh, University of Stanford went on this dig in Italy and they found this child cemetery. And so inside of a miniature tomb in what used to be a gigantic Roman villa, they said it was about the size of a shopping mall, if you can think about it like that. They found a body of a 10-year-old child who died more than 1,500 years ago. The skeleton was lying on its side with its mouth open and stuffed inside was a limestone rock about the size of a big egg. And like you said, they believe the child died of malaria 60 miles north of Rome. And they've said that the way that they buried this kid was they stuck. The kid was already already dead. They opened the mouth forcefully, shoved the rock inside and then filled the extra spots with cement so that they could be sure that the rock wouldn't come out. Right. 
And they were able to determine how old the kid was by looking at the teeth depressions. And that's how they know that the rock was put in after he was dead because of those same impressions. Right. Locally, they're calling it the Vampire of Lugnano. It's in this, like you said, it's in this area, which was like the center of witchcraft in the Roman Empire at that time in Italy. They said that this burial site has also been called La Necropoli dei Bambini which is the cemetery of babies. And they found all sorts of different stuff in this burial site. You said it was like this huge villa and they found remnants of, uh, in these trenches, they're dirt covered trenches. There was remains of infants, toddlers, aborted fetuses that had been buried alongside raven talons, toad bones, bronze cauldrons. These things were filled with ash and sacrificial puppies. Yeah, archaeologists call these deviant burials, which is the ancient way of burying people who they feared would have supernatural abilities, like coming back from the dead, or that they were people, and I I don't know how this would apply to children, but that had violated society's rules, hence the name the Vampire of Lugano. Right, and and a lot of these archaeologists and researchers saying it's stuff that they just didn't understand. These illnesses, like malaria at the time, they probably didn't have a handle on it. They didn't know what it was or why it was popping up and things that they feared they thought might come back from the dead. They thought they were vampires. That's why they took these extra steps to bury them this way so that they couldn't come back and continue to spread diseases. And they would do all kinds of things like there were rituals. I suppose you could say they would dump honeysuckle all over the place. And these were just to kind of try to make it as pure as possible so that these spirits would just pass along and not come back. We don't know the gender of this 10-year-old, the skeleton that was there, but they said that near this one was a, a three-year-old girl, the, the remains of a three-year-old girl they found that said that her hands and feet had been weighed down with stones, which was another form of vampire burial to keep the evil away so that she couldn't get up. They were able to dig in into the bones and the remains, and they also found that she had died of malaria. And they're saying that the reason why there are so many children's bodies that they have done extensive research on to find out, yeah, they all died from malaria is because this Roman Empire section was considered to be a cesspool of diseases and they had spread it through contaminated food and water and it was pretty swampy. So there were a ton of mosquitoes and that's why there was so much malaria up until they pretty much figured it out in the 1800s. This is not the only site of these quote unquote vampire burials. Yeah. In northern Italy, there was a woman who was buried with a brick in her mouth. Almost the same thing like the, you know, egg shaped rock. But this is a a brick brick. is huge, too. Right. (laughs) She was dubbed the vampire of Venice. In England, there was another guy who had his tongue taken out and replaced with a stone. So it just seemed like that was one of the popular (laughs) methods or popular rituals to keep them from being able to come back from the dead. But that guy in England is fascinating because clearly in the year 200, these people aren't talking to each other. So somewhere these people in England knew to do this exact same type of burial than the people in Northern Italy were doing at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting just what people will do when you fear something and you don't know how to control or react to it. You go through these extra steps, these rituals and label them witches and vampires and things like that. So... It's just pretty creepy that they would do that to a small child. But when you're scared of something, you're going to go those extra steps. Got to protect yourself. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.